In our text, we have this explosion of God's grace and mercy upon the people gathered in Jerusalem. So much happened when the promise of God was fulfilled. When Jesus said he would send the comforter, he'd send the spirit, so much happened at that very moment. It was too much for the gospel, for the the writer of Acts to, to capture. And so Luke had to do this editorial approach that said, you know, there are too many things to talk about. I can't fit it all in. There's a word limit on how much I can write for this book. And so I have to use some summary statements. Somehow I need to capture the the gist of what God was doing in those first few moments of the church and to do it in some very crisp kinds of sentences. And so you know this passage out of Acts chapter 2 is one of those summaries. The, The first introduction to what the church is starting to look like in its nascent form. We see it again in Acts chapter 4 as God starts to not only give them that sense of being together, but being together for a purpose that might even in fact cost them something. And then in Acts chapter 5, after the contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, we have again this summary statement about the signs and wonders performed through the apostles as they hung out at Solomon's porch. I knew you'd say amen to that one, Brother Ben. There are ways by which God blows our minds at certain times in Christian history. And this was certainly one of those times. The Spirit had begun to do a brand new and powerful work and do this decentralization of the power of God through all the followers of Jesus. And as they now multiplied in geometric forms, they had to figure out how do we do life together? Yes, we're going to do koinonia, that's part of the description we see, but there's more than simply hanging out together. There's a kind of organization that starts to happen. It almost puts us in mind of what happens in Genesis chapter 1, where God does this new thing, this new creation, and the beauty and power of of it is overwhelming to behold. Now you recall from your, your studies that this event on Pentecost mirrors what God had already done in the Old Testament and does again now in the New Testament. You recall that the Passover event, that event when God starts to deliver the people of God out of Israel and shows them the way by which he would redeem his people and the blood is on the doorpost and the meal is had in that Passover feast. Now, Just a few moments before, a few days rather, before this event in Acts chapter 2, we have another Passover that now is transformed from an old covenant to a new covenant. Jesus is the one who makes that Passover the Last Supper. And what began as the redemptive act in the people of God in the Old Testament now becomes the redemptive act of the people of God in the New Testament. In the same way, As we see in in the uh, work of Pentecost, what began in the Old Testament as a celebration of the first harvest and then became the celebration of the giving of the law on Sinai. That beginning, that spark, that catalyst of what the Jewish community would be like as they formed around God's truth. Now in this Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we have now a new formation. That Pentecost takes on new meaning and new covenant and new community. There's only one Passover that can become the Last Supper. There's only one Pentecost that can be the birthday of the church. And that's what we witness here. 
as the church gathers together, they start to put together these, these basic practices, these behaviors, these expectations that allow them to live like God intended. The Spirit has come. Many of them are overwhelmed by what's going on around them. And yet they start to gather around, in some ways, these new set of rabbis called the apostles. They gather around them to get the teaching that they have for them to engage in this self-giving relationship that they call fellowship that's based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the breaking of bread and in the meal they had shared together in the prayers. That's what you first see in the text. But they also engage in another practice that's a little bit later in the text. They practice that, have, that thing of having all things in common, what I want to tongue-in-cheek call manna management. Because it's based upon that act of God in the Old Testament that says, look, if you follow, according to Deuteronomy chapter 15, if you follow my principles and live by my law, there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land. And God reminds them of that again, when as they are in that wilderness journey and they are hungry for food, the manna comes in the morning. And there are those who gather much and those who gather little, but because they had it all in common, there was no oversupply, nor did anyone go needing. We see now in this work of the, of the Holy Spirit in developing the church, we start to see now this new revelation, this new example of living out manna management. Now it isn't as if everybody who had any kind of asset at all liquidates it. That wasn't what was happening here. Many of those who had assets may have chosen to donate portions or all of those assets for the sake of the needy, absolutely. And if Daryl Bach is right, the need was very clear, very real. By his estimate, 15% of that population was at, at middle or upper class status in the socioeconomic range. Everybody else was lower class and poor. So the need was great. But in this practice of manna management, there was this sharing of assets, sharing of resources, so that there would be this powerful sense of unity. They understood that because the Spirit had come, God was now showing up in a new and powerful way. They saw signs and wonders, evidence of the Spirit's work, but they also had this reinforcement of holy fear, holy awe, as we read later in chapters 4 and 5. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read across this text in my early days as a, as a believer, I had this image of a bunch of folks in white robes almost elevating just above the ground in this nirvana-like stance, having potluck. That, that, was, that was the image that was in my mind. You know, they, they, they had the Holy Spirit come, and then they gathered together every day for, for potluck. And I grew up in the church. I kind of like potlucks. So you'll get a smorgasbord and menu. It's a pretty good deal. I thought, man, that's doing church, baby. We're right in the apostolic tradition today in our Methodist church. We've got this down. But that wasn't it at all. This kind of church, this early form of what we are to be together as a congregation, as a body of Christ, is not a potluck dinner at the apostles' feet. This is not even about fellowship. As Ben and Craig and their commentaries remind us, the, the goal was not fellowship, the goal was holy love. And fellowship was a fruit of that love. That life together in the already and not yet of God's promised kingdom had caught their attention. 
and they knew that the rules had changed. Life was never going to be the same again. They couldn't count on what used to be any longer. They now were under new ownership. They become possessed. They become possessed, possessed by the Holy Spirit, and because of that Spirit's presence in them, they could not behave the same any longer. And they understood that if God was indeed about to bring this huge onslaught of faithful followers of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, they must act differently. Now, I don't know about you, but there are occasions when I wonder if maybe the apostle said, Lord, wait a second, slow it down just a little bit. God, wait, wait a second, this is like a, an inventory we can't take care of. There aren't systems in place. There aren't ways to take care of all these folks. How are we going to do it? And it's as if the Spirit says, do you remember the gathering of the 5,000? When you gather in the groups and there's enough for everybody and some left over, start there. As they lived into this sense of faithfulness in God's supply, they became a power, powerful kind of union in Christ that was contagious. Now, the closest I've seen for what I see described in Acts chapter 2 might be reflected in this story. Each year, we take a group of doctor and ministry students, many of them international, to Houston, Texas. And while in Houston, we take them to see about a dozen different ministries. One of those ministries is a street ministry where we go out and witness to drug addicts and homeless and other kinds of folks on the margins. We go late into the night, and so the next morning when we gather them together again, we let them sleep in about 9 o'clock or so, and then we gather them in a room. We say, now, what was your experience last night? Many of them have never done it before. One particular conversation we had struck me. As we started to debrief the experience of the night before, one of our African brothers broke down and sobs. We were trying to be culturally sensitive. We didn't know all that was going on in him. And so we said, brother, what, what's happening? What, what, what are you feeling? So what I witnessed last night would never happen in my village. In my village, if you're part of the village, we will care for you. We will feed you. We will house you. It is impossible to be hungry or homeless in my village. I don't understand why in the United States of America something like that could happen. That's what Acts chapter 2 was about. It was that sense of being together in the power of the Spirit, that kind of unity in Christ that allowed them to sacrifice with joy and a sense of gratitude that only God could provide by the Spirit. Now you'll notice... Some of these folks were wealthy enough, affluent enough to have some assets. They at least had homes large enough to let some groups gather for meals. And it seems, at least early on, they chose not to liquidate that asset. They chose to keep the homes and use them for the purpose of ministry. They, in many ways, as we see in Leviticus 25, they knew that they were stewards of what God had entrusted to them. Yahweh was the founder and the guarantor of all that they had in that covenant community. And this is much more than what some of the philosophical trends might have been in that day. This wasn't simply the Greek idea of brotherly love where all things are in common. It wasn't following Aristotle's friendship teachings. This was an eschatological witness and a blessing to the nations. That's what God was doing. As they lived out their lives as that early church, they became conscious of God doing far more than they could ask or imagine, and God multiplying all that they brought to the table 
and making it enough for the nations. They lived out day by day what our brother from Brazil, Paulo Garcia, talked about as the everydayness of discipleship. Hear, hear what he describes. The emphasis falls on action, sacramental action through baptism, didactical action and instruction, and finally the dynamic nature of making disciples who become inscribed into the daily life of the human existence. It's not only instruction, which is important, nor only sacramental actions, which are equally important, but also all activities of the communities of faith of, and of the community members that are discipleship actions. In other words, every day we are living out our lives faithfully as disciples of Jesus, no matter where we are or what we're doing. They showed us what the church was about. It wasn't just simply sitting together at the apostles' feet in some kind of divine pose. Rather, it was that sense of being drawn together and sent out, having all that we own, all that we have for the sake of the gospel, being at Christ's disposal by the Spirit. There are many ways in which the church is misunderstood today. If you look at the opinion polls, the church has lost a lot of favor and a lot of influence. But I suspect in part that's because the world has not seen the church in its full power. The church is more than institutions. The church is more than short-term mission trips. The church is more than the wonderful things he describes. The church is every person, in every place, on every day, living for Jesus as disciples. That's the church. But he fell into the same trap that we fall into as professional religious types. We think in institutional terms when God thinks in individual terms. Every person, everywhere, every day, living for Jesus. That's what discipleship is. The difficulty is that we get sidetracked. We, even as pastors, as leaders of the church, we fall into the trap. And let me describe it this way. My former senior pastor, Mike Slaughter, would, would have the, uh, the gift of irritation by his own self-description. But he would use this language from time to time just to tick off the laity enough to get them moving. He said, look, we've got ministry to do, but you don't want us to go do it. We're paid for doing it. We're mercenaries. You don't want a bunch of mercenaries going and doing that kind of care and, 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 care and taking care of the mission. That, that's, we need real Christians. We need people who do it because they love Jesus, not because they're paid for it. Friends, sometimes we hold our lay folks back thinking they don't qualify. Or even worse, that if they're making more money than we are, something's wrong. When in fact, what God was doing in Acts chapter 2 was multiplying the saints across the planet, ordained or not, on the apostles' anointing or not, because everywhere they went, whether in business or in the homes or in the neighborhoods or in institutions or in the church, everywhere they went, they were witnesses to the power and glory of God's mercy. In about two or three weeks, you'll get to meet a gentleman I'm about to describe to you. We were just in Selma last week, and as we saw his ministries and heard his story, it was a powerful reminder of what God does through folks who love Jesus and aren't mercenaries. His name is Bob Armstrong. He happens to be the district judge for Dallas County, which is where Selma is located. 
Bob had uh, gotten the attention of Jessica Avery and some others here from, from the campus, and he wanted to talk with us about making some of uh, one of the internship sites for church planting. And so Steve Offit and I went down to take a look and get a sense of things, and here's what we discovered. As we heard Bob's story, it was, it was a very fresh reminder of God's faithfulness. In the middle 90s, Bob was ignited by the Holy Spirit. He'd grown up in the church. He, he had been very mainline in, in, in his upbringing. But for one way or another, the Spirit got his attention. And he had to figure out what to do with it. And so as the Spirit started to stir in him, he thought, well, then I must be called to, to go to seminary. So he went to Columbia Theological Seminary, which was connected to his denomination. And he met with one of our Asbury alums, a, a brother by the name of uh, Ben Campbell Johnson. And he went to, to meet with him and said, uh, Professor, I, I think I might be called to seminary. And Ben sat with him, and they talked together, and they sat in silence together and discerned. And then Ben said, no, you're not called to seminary. Go and be faithful where you are. Bob said, wait a second, are you sure? I mean, I, I, I could be a fresh student for you. I could help bring in tuition and income. He said, no, you're not called to seminary. Bob said, I think, brother, that you are the voice of God to me. And Ben said, I know that I am. I've never said this to any other person who's come to my office. So Bob went back to Selma. And soon after that, he felt the prompting of the Spirit to uh, run, to be, be, uh, be one of the candidates for the district judge of the county. He put his name forward. He uh, did the race and lost. And he was so confused. God, what are you doing? It was 1998. What are you doing? I thought you called me. I thought the Spirit and I was enlivening me. What's this all about? It took six more years before he was finally elected to become the district judge of that county. In 2004, when you looked at their statistics, they were one of the worst in the state around juvenile justice issues. It was horrible. Many of the businesses was going, were going out. The Air Force already pulled out of the base there. Uh, they were in desperate straits. But if you look at the data today, they are now one of the top 10 counties in the state around juvenile justice issues because of the wonderful programs they put in place, both as a district court judge and as someone that God had called in 2008 to plant a church with 30 other people. They call it Blue Jean Church. And their mission, their calling, is to build up the city of Selma for the sake of Jesus. To be the salt, light, and leaven in that area for the sake of Christ. And as you hear Bob talk about it, it's hard to know whether these things were happening with his judge hat on or with his church planter hat on. Because they intertwined for him. He was just a faithful lover of Jesus who wanted his life to make a difference. And it has. Don't miss him on the 28th as he comes and um, shares with us a little bit of a testimony and we'll be in, in lunch talk back afterwards. Now, Bob wasn't the first one. Let me share one other story of a faithful businessman who made a difference. We all know about William Tyndale. We know about his role in the 16th century in putting the, the Bible into English for those who, who lived in England. And you know the kind of persecution he went under, the kind of resistance there was even a quote that said, uh, one of the priests said, I do not want to, the Bible in English because these lay people may understand it better than I do. As Tyndale was wrestling with that call, he ran across by a guy by the name of Humphrey Monmouth. 
Humphrey was a textile dealer in London, very affluent. And as they met each other in 1524, Monmouth became Tyndale's gospel patron. By the way, there's a book, new book by that, that name, by John Reinhardt, which is a beautiful description of what happens. Not only with Monmouth, but many others throughout history whose faithfulness in business made mission possible. Monmouth met Tyndale and offered him to have room and board and a stipend for six months as he started to do the translation work from the Greek into the English. The pressure from the church officials and, and the, um, the critics was so powerful that he was run out of town, run out of country, he went to Europe. But before he left, Monmouth introduced him to a secret society called the Society of Christian Brethren. This was a group of Christian businessmen who had been using their assets to help spread the, the, uh, the scriptures and the uh, other kinds of literature in English throughout the, the country of England to try to raise up an acceleration of the Reformation movement. They were this wholly subversive group in a clandestine way who were trying to advance the gospel. As Tyndale fled to Europe, he finally got the translation finished in 1526, supported in large part by this clandestine society and by, by Monmouth. And from there, once it was done, they would stick copies of the English Bible in bolts of cloth and import them from Europe into England. An early Brother Andrew action that allowed the scriptures now to show up throughout England. Two years after their death, the king of England said, okay, here's the deal. Every church gets an English Bible. So be it today. 75 years after that, that version got updated in the King James Version of the Bible. Not bad for a businessman. Not bad for a guy who simply wants to be an everyday disciple in every place, in every way. We hear from the brother Luke in Acts chapter 2 that as those early Christians, those early believers came together, they came around the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and this kind of having all things in common, this manna management. Many of us either are or will be responsible for shepherding, for stewarding the lives entrusted to us. Many of us who have lay people who are far outnumber us, are asking the question, can we play too? Can we be part of the miracle of God when the Spirit starts to flow and lives get changed and things are never the same again? Can we be part of that kind of call? And I wonder, how might God use us to be faithful stewards of that trust? How might God use us to be good shepherds of the sheep in everyday discipleship? How might God use us to have everyday disciples in every place in the world? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, bless you for these faithful saints, for those who have gone before and those gathered in this room. Bless you for your spirit's faithfulness that stirs us, plants dreams and visions, and goes beyond our categories. Forgive us for those times when we think we have it figured out. 
And we just pray you'd surprise us again by the power of your Holy Spirit that we run into these many Pentecosts happening all over the place that we can't control, but you've intended. We ask that we and those that we lead would see the joy of everyday discipleship, whether in worship on Sunday morning or digging ditches on Tuesday afternoon or caring for the laboratory on Wednesday morning, whatever it might be, wherever we might go. Help us to have faithful disciples. These people who love Jesus and in incognito ways go as disciples disguised as teachers and scientists and professors and everyday folks. Do that new work in us and help us to release your people. In the name of Jesus, and amen.